Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny SD. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 124 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. Today I'm here with Michael Klepatz from Warsaw, Poland. We are here, well, we are here in Poland. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, man. Uh, so where are you actually from originally? I was originally born in Toledo, Ohio. Nice. Yeah. And we are now in the Saul, the yeah. Warsaw. Yeah, like Warszawa as they call it. So, Michael is are you? Well, how, how are you involved with Natural Materials, the hemp company? I'm the owner. The owner. He's yeah. the owner of a hemp company yeah. that is somehow based in Poland, but you sell to the U.S. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So actually, so I met. Uh, you want to tell everyone how we met? Yeah, last night we were at a basically like an entrepreneurial get together that we have every month in Warsaw called Next Vav, and it's about just bringing young minds and new businesses together to create some synergy here, get some stuff done. So before last night, I was actually kind of leaning toward moving to Krakow next year when I'm going to spend the summer, thinking, okay, like there's a big debate, right? I think everyone in Poland either loves Warsaw or they love Krakow and they usually kind of hate the other. What, what side are you on? Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more towards the Krakow side. I hope that my like Warsaw friends don't hear that, but um, I find the bigger the city, like the kind of the less charming it is because it becomes a little bit rat race and, and personal. Um, uh, technically, Warsaw is a cleaner city, whereas Krakow has a bit more pollution, but the, the whole vibe between Warsaw versus Krakow comes down to Krakow used to be the capital. Um, so now that Warsaw is the capital, they, they kind of butt heads like Ohio versus Michigan football game. But what's funny is, at least in most of the U.S., like nobody cares what the capital is. Like Nobody's excited that you're from Washington, D.C. because it's the capital. Right. Or no one's excited that you live in Sacramento, California, instead of San Francisco or L.A. or San Diego, which are all three better cities <laughs> than the capital. Yeah, SAC is pretty boring as far as cities go when you consider all the amazing places in Cali. What is the capital of Ohio? Uh, it's actually Columbus, and there's also nothing special about it. So I wonder what it is about Europe that the capital is actually normally kind of the... It's definitely the place that people go to most. Uh, so, like, whenever you, like, let's say you go to Austria, you're, you're going to go to Vienna. You know, if you go to Hungary, you're going to go to Budapest. So, why why do you think it is that in Europe the capitals are so important? I don't I don't know. I mean, for the most part, when you look at it, the these cities are so old. You know what I mean? Whereas like the U.S. is like not even 300 years old yet, um, and that's. That's like a catnap for cities like Warsaw that, that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're all they're all around like major rivers and stuff. And it, it all like if you follow like the old trade routes and stuff. Um, and I think people are just kind of traditionalists here. So I also feel like the capitals get a lot more funding, a lot more money, especially to build cool stuff. So like in Sacramento, there's nothing really cool, right? I guess you can some of the government buildings, but nobody cares. Because they're, they're not old, they're not, you know, there's no history really. But here, or pretty much in all of Europe, the capitals will have these, you know, 700-year-old cathedrals and palaces, you know? And you just don't have that in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's totally true. And then you have places like Warsaw uh, that were like 85% destroyed during the war. 
And it was, you know, like the old town and Novi Sviat and Stari Miasto were literally like redesigned from paintings and old architectural drawings from students in like the 1950s and stuff. I've heard that, that they literally had to like go to go to the art school and ask the students who've used these uh, these squares as as just practice paintings like they, they weren't even trying to draw all these places that was just like a homework assignment saying okay now you got to go to the square and draw these buildings and it was so detailed that they were able to completely recreate all of these houses all of these temples and buildings yeah it's it, it's totally opposite where like krakow was the center of the the general government in world war ii for hitler so that city was basically completely untouched you know uh, and totally preserved from its like original form, and you can totally feel it while you're there, like the kind of medieval, kind of gothic sort of vibe. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like Krakow the most is it feel you could feel that the history, and it's so beautiful, but not just this like layer of paint beauty. It's like a deep, authentic beauty. Right, and it's I feel bad because it's not Warsaw's fault. You know, it's if anything, it's Hitler's fault. You know, it, Warsaw didn't want to get bombed and have to rebuild, and I'd rather have it be re and i guess we done uh, and not authentic than not exist so it's, it's kind of one of those catch-22s like you know would we rather have a real plat palace and um, you know these old buildings that are remanufactured to look old or we just not have them at all i think you know, there's generally after a couple of years of living here i find that there's like two schools of thought in warsaw i don't know if you had a chance to go to the warsaw uprising museum yet not yet super cool place um, and the, there's two schools of thought, um, and you'll get to see that here uh, in a couple of days on August 1st at 5 p.m. The entire city will go silent for one minute to commemorate the beginning of the Warsaw Uprising. I get like goosebumps just thinking about it. It's super, super cool. So I recommend uh, being uh, in this kind of central park behind Novi Sviat where they have the unknown soldier tomb, and like that's where it all kind of kicks off. Okay. Um, and the school of thought is there are certain people who find the uprisers as heroes, and there are certain people who find the uprisers as fools, basically. So it was foolish to uprise and get the city destroyed, or it was heroic to uprise and fight for what you believe in. Oh, that's why the city got destroyed is because of the uprising. Yeah, the, yeah. So the wow. uprising happened, and the Germans retreated, and Hitler just gave the order to just carpet bomb the city. That's so crazy, man. Yeah. Man. You know, like, even though, like, when we go on Facebook nowadays or Twitter, it seems like the world is so messed up. There's so many bombings everywhere. There's so many shootings and mass, you know, mass killings that we think the world is so messed up. But in fact, this is actually the safest time in the history of mankind to, to live. I agree. As, as a veteran myself, I'm, I'm happy to be alive right now. Yeah. So what did, what did you serve in? Uh, I was in the Air Force. Oh, nice. And did, did you get traveled out for that? Honestly, I joined to travel and I was... I was forbidden to travel. Why, why is that? Um, I, the shop that I worked in, we only had two of them in the entire country that were active duty. Uh, and within that shop, there were only two people who had my job working on the aircraft. So our job was basically to overhaul and inspect cargo planes. Um, and it was literally at Travis Air Force Base, California only. Well, at least got to go to California, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So I, li- I lived in Cali for about six years total. So what brings you to Poland? It was to Warsaw. Oh, man. The, you know, the, the short story is, is after I got out of uh, the 
Air Force, I wanted to go to school for the GI Bill because I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, right? Um, and my mom jokingly said to me one day, why don't you go work at Cedar Point, which is where it was one of the world's largest amusement parks. You'll meet a Polish girl. And I was like, oh yeah, that's totally true. There's always like European chicks uh, working on the work and travel program at Cedar Point. And so I, I got a job at Cedar Point as a lifeguard. And then I became a, a team leader over there and met a Polish girl. Came That's back. so funny. Okay, so a little context. Is your like family Polish? Yeah, by blood, I'm 100% Polish. Okay. So I've always wanted to like come here and visit and vacation, but me and my mom were going to come here when I graduated high school just for a vacation, but instead I went to boot camp, you know? Okay, and Cedar Point, is that like an amusement park or what is that? Yeah, they have like... I don't know, 18 roller coasters and stuff. And most of them were like record breakers. It's in Sandusky, Ohio. So you met a nice Polish girl that was just there for the summer or? Yeah, tons of them, but one in particular. Okay. Yeah. And you're like, all right, well, let's move to Poland. Yeah, kind of. A a bunch of them were like, dude, you got to come to Poland. You got to teach English. You'll really like it. And so I came over here for six months. I was teaching English and hanging out. And then in 2009 is when the whole stock market crashed and stuff. And they finally had redone the GI Bill. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go back and try to get into a good school. We'll stay in a relationship, whatever. Um, And it ended up not working out. I had gone through some things where I just completely changed the direction in life I wanted to go. I went from wanting to be a chiropractor to wanting to be an organic farmer. And I was like, I've completely like did a 180 in that one year period. And then I actually started dating uh, one of my English students that I've met here while I was in Warsaw in 2008, 2009. And we're actually still together. It's been like six years. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So I've, I've heard, I don't know if this is a, a rumor or not, but they say that like if you move to Poland, you will end up having a girlfriend, wh- whether you like her or not. Yeah, you know, my friend, so Drew, who you met last night, um, that, that's kind of what happened to him. He moved, he moved here and it's, it's just, I mean, whether you're in Ukraine or Poland, you can throw a rock in any direction and just hit a gorgeous girl. It's ridiculous. And, and uh, the, they're, they're very, um, I don't know, I don't know how to describe Polish chicks, but they're definitely worth the the catch, I think. Yeah, well, they're super nice, super down to earth. I would say the biggest difference between dating a Polish girl and an American girl is they don't play... I I don't know about a relationship, right? But just like when you first meet them, they're just very upfront and down to earth with you. So if they like you, they'll let you know. If they don't like you, they'll let you know. Oh, yeah. And I, I respect that so much. You know, I, I, I don't think it's, you know, either the guys or the girls' faults that the way, you know, things are the way they are in the U.S. With, when it comes to dating. Right. But it fuels a fire where, you know, if a guy plays a game, then the girl has to play a game. Then right. the girl plays a game and the guy has to play a game. And it just becomes this crazy thing where, you know, in reality, I think everyone just wants to find love. Everyone wants a partner. Everybody wants somebody to watch movies with, to eat with, to sleep with, to, to be with. Netflix and chill. Yeah. And it, it just, in the US and lot, you know, lots of places in the world, you know, London for sure. I'm sure, you know, in most, you know, definitely in Sydney, a lot of the bigger cities, I would say, it's like this game that both sides are playing. And in Poland, it feels like there's no game. It's like you can go up to a girl at a bar and say, hi, can I buy you a drink? And and in the US, she'll probably be like, okay, take four more and then be like, okay, bye. And you'll be like, why, why did I just spend $47 on drinks? And if she wasn't interested, why didn't she say anything? And then on her point of view, which I also understand is, why should I talk to this guy that I'm not interested in? Like, why do I own something just because he bought me a drink? Right. Well, in Poland, what's nice is you can say, hey, I could buy a drink. And if she's not interested, she would just say like, oh, no, thank you. And then the guy would be like, okay, 
you know, yep. thanks for letting me know. <laughs> and if she does take the drink, it doesn't mean that she wants to be with you, but it means that she's at least someone interested and she's going to want to talk to you for at least that, you know, the five minutes it takes to have that drink. Right. Yeah, I think I always kind of joke with my Polish friends that right now the the vibe that I feel with like the people and the culture and the way that things are moving, it's very... Uh, not the style, but the culture is very like 1990s, early 2000s here. Whereas like how I felt in California, as far as the people acted in Ohio, as far as the people acted. And you're right. Where, you know, 10 years ago, I feel like the dating scene, it wasn't about a bunch of head games and stuff like that. Um, and then here, I mean, I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at, at feminists or whatever. I kind of feel like Bernie Sanders, right? Sort of am a feminist myself, but I feel like uh, there's the kind of woman who uh, wants to prove that she's like good enough to do stuff for herself. And then there's the kind of person uh, who knows that they can do stuff, but they still want, you know, help. So like here, uh, it's still, um, what's the word? Uh, you know, chivalry. It exists here still. Men are still um, uh, opening doors for women and, and women are still saying thank you. I mean, but people in Poland are so nice that they're basically opening doors for everybody anyways in general, but... Yeah, and you know, that's the other thing I like about Poland is people are like just genuinely very nice. Like even the guys, which I didn't expect because in my mind, Polish guys were, you know, like these hardcore, um, little like Soviet type guys, right? Which are completely wrong because my history is bad, but... I envisioned it like the UFC fighter, um, Krzysztof Szymanski, the, the Polish experiment. This, you know, this big, uh, bald, muscular guy, tattoos, you know, it's kind of badass. And I'm sure that, you know, they still kind of exist, especially here on the progress side of, of Warsaw. Right. But in general, just Polish guys are just, just really nice guys. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, most of those guys become bouncers for bars. And I've, I've literally seen some people physically bounced out of bars like a basketball just hit the floor kind of thing they don't mess around the bouncers here so yeah okay i like it but there's also no reason to because there's like a million bars and the average drink price here is what like two dollars oh my god i know you can get drunk here so cheap so cheap and the the one thing that i find strange but also like a business opportunity is, is there's not like the pop dispenser where you can like press one button for soda water one button for sprite instead you'll see people walking around with a jack and coke and half a bottle of coke so the weirdest thing is if you get a shot of vodka on its own it's a, like a dollar 25 maybe yeah but then if you want a vodka soda it's now five dollars <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because you have to buy a bottle of soda and a shot of vodka. Yeah. It's the strangest thing to me. Yeah. So, so one of these days, maybe I'll start that soda pop gun company and then I'll revolutionize the speed and efficiency in which they serve drinks here. We'll see. I like it. And, you know, speaking of that, there are so many business opportunities in Poland, which is weird because it's one of those things where... So yesterday at the at the meetup, the, the next Warsaw meetup, uh, it was called Startup Pitching, where they had a bunch of startup founders based in Warsaw or based in, or who are currently in Poland, I guess, um, pitch their ideas and get, you know, either, I don't know, I guess just get feedback, see if anyone's interested in trying their products, um, things like that. And one of the girls, she had a business that is a, um, like a customizable kid's book. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I asked her the question saying, why are you trying to go into the, because her, her question was, how can we get into the US market? And my question to her was, why do you want to go in the US market? There are 10 competitors that do customized kids books already in the US, but probably nobody is doing it in Poland or 
even the rest of Europe. Why not just take over Europe? Why try to compete with with you know the big boys and ten other people in the U.S.? I don't know. I think I think a lot of people are um, ignorant to how tough things are to actually scale. You know what I mean? Whereas if you, then that's like my question to her was, so what languages are these available in? And right now I know it's Polish and English. So it makes sense to completely take over the Polish market. It makes sense to kind of expand from there. She mentioned England and stuff, and that's cool. Um, and to stay within the European Union, there's tons of cultures, tons of opportunities. Um, and, you know, I don't know if they have a Swedish version of this or a Norwegian version of this or a German version of this, but there could be. Whereas in the U.S., I feel like you're kind of bringing water to the ocean yeah and and the thing is i you know i don't even have kids but i've heard like a podcast interview with someone who does the exact same business and then i did a quick google search and i was like there's at least 10 on the first page of people that do the exact same thing so if i was her i would even if i wanted to keep it in english you know i, I think there's two ways to do it you can either translate it into every language you can do russian spanish portuguese you know everything or you can keep it in english and market it in Europe, saying this is a way where your your kids can can also learn English, and then maybe have the sales page be in the other language, uh, so that the parents can kind of understand it a little bit a little bit easier. But there, I mean, there's so many there's so many opportunities here, right? I think Poland, um, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but Poland is the, one of the least developed countries in the European Union right now. So according to EU law. Poland has to get the seed money. So there's literally billions and billions of euros being invested into, you know, Poland every single year. And so if if you have a solid business plan and you want to get 100,000 euro to start a business and you have 30,000 euro yourself, you can, you know, get that seed money. And Oh, that's incredible. I didn't know yeah, that. Is yeah. that why the startup scene here is, is so thriving? You know, I don't, I don't know. I if you look at the startup scene in general in Poland, it is it's becoming exponentially bigger every single year. Like European people, from what I've found, are very like risk averse, whereas Americans, like if you didn't fail, you didn't try. You know, like failure is part of learning. Whereas here, uh, if you fail, you should just go get a job. And I think it was Mark Cuban that said this, or yeah, I think it was Mark Cuban. He said, you only have to, to succeed once in business. And it's so true because in other things, I guess if you keep failing, you know, maybe you're kind of a, a failure, right? But if you are a business owner and you fail seven businesses, you stay afloat, your eighth one works and takes off, nobody cares about the first seven. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like you, um, it, in relationships, sometimes you're, you're not remembered for all the good things you've done, but you remember for that one bad thing. Uh, uh, but in business, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, which is why business is probably easier than relationships. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So, tell me about your business. Why did you start it here in Poland, or do you just happen to be here now? You know, the, my whole entrepreneurship process has kind of been—it's been a long thing coming. Um, it happened for me because, uh, and I'm going to plug something here. Uh, in 2010, I was going to Burning Man, um, and I was kind of spaced out at Burning Man, and I realized everybody who was there were either super dirt poor minimalists or like self-made people who were entrepreneurs and they could do what they wanted when they wanted it, you know? And that's that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, I had started working on a patent. Um, and a year later, uh, a friend of mine contacted me who was going to school at Purdue and she said, hey, uh, there's this program here called the Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities, EBV for short. So, uh, so I'm 40% disabled veteran. Um, 
And so it had turned out that they had like 10 different locations at like Syracuse, Purdue, UCLA, et cetera. And so I applied and I was accepted with my, you know, my business plan for the patent, all that stuff got accepted. And so I found myself just thrown into this entrepreneurial program at UCLA and it was super hardcore. It was a couple of months online school and then for a week and a half, 12 hours a day, no days off, like straight up boot camp. Um, and you know, since then I've gone to school for my bachelor's in business and entrepreneurship, and I'm now I'm working on a master's in, uh, virtual environment, you know, making money online. And I can tell you, I learned more at UCLA in the EBV program in just a few months in such a condensed version that I have across like the years of going to business school here. And so it's just, I wanted to start a business that didn't, that I wasn't a slave to, you know what I mean? Um, I'm familiar with all the different kinds of, you know, business models that are available today. So when I got done with UCLA, um, I had, you know, one product, which was the patent. And I was advised to get uh, a few products together because, you know, if people are looking for my product, then maybe you should start a web store that sells products that go along with it. So then I started a little e-commerce shop in 2011. And I've just kind of been growing on things since. And now I have a factory. That's a really, really cool story. I, I also agree, like business school or just school in general now, it's like this long drawn out process where what are the, what are we actually taking from it? You know, besides the actual experience of being, you know, away at college, away from our parents uh, and having to, to live our own, I think we learn more from that than we do from the actual classes. You know, things like this boot camp that you took, or even if you just took a crash course online on your own, read books, uh, took, you know, took a program, took a seminar or something. I think we really learn more from that and also just doing it than we do in two two years four years of school yeah i think um it, it was cool for me because you know i had gone from working in government jobs and working as managers for different companies and so i had quote unquote all of this life experience when i got to college right and i was sitting in a room with people who were fresh out of high school didn't know anything about life um, we're still living with their parents. That's the culture here in Warsaw. Um, and, and they're hearing all this really good information, but they have no way to process it and apply it to the world. Whereas I'm, I'm hearing a lecturer say something and I'm like, I guess I should have done that back then. And I can relate to some of the things that they're saying, but you're right. Um, you know, like small, small entrepreneurial business by cats and green was a great book. Uh, the new business road tests, uh, was a good book. Um, really, when you go to a college lecture, it's essentially a watered down book. That's basically what it is. You have 30 hours of reviewing a couple of different books and having conversations with smart people and networking opportunities. That's basically what it comes down to. When it comes down to like a lecture will never teach you this is how you start a business in Poland from A to Z. This is what kind of accounting principles you'll have to follow. Uh, here's how you can find business partners and, and materials for manufacturing or, or loans. They, they don't help you with that kind of stuff. And that's, that's why like LinkedIn is great because you can get with groups of entrepreneurs and, and network. So I like how you, you how you, could have broke down school as a watered down book because when I think about it, I've never heard of it that way, but when I think about it, it's true because the professor is assigning you a book and they're saying, okay, today we're going to read these two chapters and we're going to talk about it and do a quiz on it. Next week, we read these, these two chapters and we're going to talk about it and do a quiz on it. And in a sense, I guess, you know, it would, we would be talking to having a great conversation, um, 
you know, with people who know experts about it. But in reality, especially with business, are these people experts? The other students are definitely not experts. The professor is probably not an expert himself, you know, or herself, or they wouldn't be teaching, you know, unless there's that rare case of somebody who you know, build a business, sold it and said, you know, now I want to teach, which I think is, is awesome. And I think that's actually what I want to do if I ever retire. Uh, but most of them never, never ran a business. And if they did, it was in the, like the 80s or 70s and it's just not applicable anymore. And, and also the books that they're giving us are also from the 80s or 70s and definitely not applicable either. I think uh, it was it was cool. The school that I'm going to is is Kozminski, um, and and it was actually it didn't cost me a thing. It's a private university, and for a Polish person, it's rather expensive. But for me, the the GI Bill paid for it, so I actually got paid to go there, which was awesome. Um, and and that's how I came up with some seed money for for my business and stuff. But at Kozminski, they have. Um, they have professors who are actually working like some of some of them used to work for the international monetary fund or like we have millionaire professors that basically teach for fun and in some cases i feel like they're actually headhunting you know like they're trying they they are millionaires and they're doing their own thing but they're also kind of like looking for the next talent you know? I like that a lot. I think that's the way it should be, you know, where it's uh, a founder of a company or CEO of a company and they just happen to do this on the side. You know, maybe they can have like teacher's assistants that kind of lead most of the kind of boring stuff, do all the grading, and they can kind of just come in and share their knowledge, get to know some of the students, mentor some of them, and then, you know, basically swoop some of them up after they graduate and work for them. Yeah, I think the, the system of how professors like work here in Poland and Europe in general. Um, it's a, it's different than, than in the States where if you work for a university in the States, you work there full time. That's all you do. Whereas, uh, you know, and you're expected to write so many papers per year, you're expected to teach, you're expected to do a bunch of other things within the university. Whereas at Kozminski, they might only be there a few hours a week. You know what I mean? Like they're there just to teach their class and then they go back and they do their day to day. I think that's awesome because that brings so much more real-world experience. I just let, listened to a podcast this morning about uh, Mormons. And what was really interesting to me about it was that their pastors are not full-time pastors of the church. They are they are like dentists or like business people. And they just volunteer there, you know, on Sundays and, and teach for, you know, those couple of hours. And then they go home back to the normal job. So they're able to bring their perspective of real life, you know, of just, you know, what people do day to day, not as a full-time pastor who, you know, is probably still living in like the 1800s. Uh, and also they don't do it for as a career. It's it, They literally just do it for a few years and then, they, then, then there's someone else. So not that I've been to Mormon church or anything, but this kind of sound like to me, this, it sounds like there's so many better ways of, of learning, you know, from you know, not having that be a full-time thing because there's no almost no incentive for a, a professor to want you to make more money than them, to excel better. You know, they just want to do kind of whatever they need to get you to pass a test. While if it's a CEO of a company or a founder of a company, they, you know, they have that drive, that, that hunger, and also they want to cultivate the best possible talent pool as well yeah i think i think the the learning scene nowadays is totally different um whereas you know i don't know how you learned what you learned but you know for sure it was probably and i can guess it it's meeting professionals that are doing what you want to do reading books that maybe they wrote or in general different topics um i hung out on lynda.com a lot or udemy or you know downloading torrents of lynda.com which 
which I don't recommend people do officially with a wink. Um, but, you know, if you're hungry for the information, you're going to be able to find it. And if you're the kind of person who can be self-taught, then you're the kind of person who can do anything. Yeah. So uh, my, my story, very similar. I met a guy named Anton who became who was doing what I wanted to do. He was starting these e-commerce stores. They're uh, dropship based. He had a course, which I actually paid for and I, I don't, I didn't tour it. But um, I would say the biggest benefit of actually paying for something, there's two benefits. Is one is you get access to their private member forms. And I really believe that these like communities, especially if it's a good one, this is more valuable than the actual course itself. Because the information you, you can kind of find everywhere, you know, people say, you know, uh, the downside of that is the information is normally kind of scattered, right? So it might be outdated or it might be kind of regurgitated from someone else or it might be like bits and pieces that you have to figure out. While in a course, you know, it's updated, it's from like A to Z, but more importantly, you get the community of other people who are doing it and people that are serious about it because if someone pays a thousand or two thousand dollars to join a course, they're going to be serious about it, you know, and they're going to know that you're serious. So they're going to take their time to really ha- help you. One of the reasons why I, I completely stopped answering, you know, like dropshipping related questions on public forums and Facebook groups is none of the people are serious, you know, and I used to give people the benefit of the doubt, like, okay, maybe they really want to learn. Maybe they really want to know and they just can't afford a course. But 100% of the time I've wasted my time answering people's questions and having them either come back with 20 more unrelated questions or just they never get started or they find worse, they find excuses why it doesn't work. And it just drives me crazy. Well, you know, uh, excuses are like assholes. Everybody has one. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I, you're right. You're right. There's. I know there there are so many different kinds of personalities in the world, and and I'm glad that you realize that you're probably like wasting your time on the keyboard generals who are just. You know, there, there are people who uh, want to do, and there are people who don't want to do, and then there are people who actually do. You know what I mean? And there's so many people who are always looking on the other side of the fence at what they think your lifestyle is, or or how much effort uh, they think something could be. You know, so you know, one of somebody that I know. Uh, I won't mention a name said, oh, yeah, you know, I spent like five hundred dollars on this on this course. And it taught me all about like if I have my own website with backlinks, then I can make money from it and stuff. And I'm like, you you can. But um, it, it's not as easy as you're portraying to me. Like you're, you're not you're not able just to put a web page up uh, with a couple of backlinks um, and with Google's, you know, ever changing algorithms, like get traffic and get interest. I'm like, you have to, you have to blog daily or weekly. You have to add value. You have to create synergy. You have to do all this stuff. It's not just paying $400 for some magic program, learning some of the information, not necessarily processing the information, thinking you know what you're doing and attempting to do what they explained and then all of a sudden making $800 next week. It just It's just not real. Yeah, especially with like SEO and private blog networks with backlinks and stuff. It's so complicated. And actually, the reason why I don't like doing that stuff at all and I don't even mess with uh, any kind of black hat or gray hat SEO is Google is way smarter than all of us and they're always going to change and these people they might kind of make you know some money for a bit and then they get slapped by Google they get their accounts shut down forever 
it's, it's just it's to me it's ridiculous uh the things i don't like about like those, those courses that I'm, I'm guessing the one that your friend took is they kind of teach you these you know these kind of basics and then they're like okay well now you need backlinks you know you can you, know, you can buy our backlinks you know a private blog network service for this amount of money and this is huge upsell whenever I, t- I take a course i always look to see if there's upsells before i buy the course because i'm like okay if i'm gonna spend a thousand dollars on this course how much more do I need to spend afterwards? And what I really liked about, I think I just got lucky because I just, I've only taken one course. And she's like, okay, it's a thousand bucks, that's it. And there's no upsells, there's nothing else. You know, you pay like your, your domain fee or, you know, hosting fee. And the thing about what we were saying earlier about like the three types of people, I really believe that you can be self-taught. You don't need to take a course. You don't need to go to school or go get a master's program. You know, you can just read stuff online you can you know you can read books and there are there are a few people that could download a course and just be like okay i'm just gonna take this and I'm, I'm gonna be good i don't need a community i don't need the updated version i just need something and i've met a few of them but i have also met thousands more who just never do anything with it uh while i would say with like if someone's gonna invest a thousand dollars into something then they're gonna be like okay I, i'm i'm very serious about this and their chances are gonna be just they're just always gonna be higher i think so i actually announced on my blog yesterday um a kind of a partnership program. I'm looking for a bunch of people who I want to start stores with. So I, I, I don't, you probably don't know this, but I sold my last dropshipping store very recently, and which is why one of the reasons why I'm able to just travel and not work this summer. But I know that money is going to dry up, you know, at some point. So I wanted to to build some more stores. Uh, so I did the math and I realized I'm like, okay, so I made around two thousand to three thousand dollars a month in profit from the store, and I ran it for about two and a half years. And then when I sold it, I got 60K for it kind of upfront. So I'm like, okay, if we do this, you know, if I could do, replicate this, which I know I can, uh, and I can run a store that makes two or three grand a month, run it for 12 months, and then sell it for 50 or 60K, that's 100K. And if I can do 10 of these, it's a million dollars. <laughs> so I thought, okay, why not get 10 people or maybe five people and do two stores each or something? I haven't decided yet. Get a, get a couple people and just do this process together, split the money. Uh, so I just put up an announcement on my blog, johnnyfd.com, saying this is my plan. Uh, I'm not going to actually start yet because I still want to travel and just enjoy Europe. So I think I'm going to start in November. But I want to just kind of let everyone know what the type of person I'm looking for. So if they are not that person yet, they have three months to become that person. And I really believe that you can be anyone and you can, you can achieve any small goal in three months. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the our generation uh, has learned, uh, you know, like the, the P90X thing, like you can totally transform yourself in 90 days. But it's, it's whether you want to do something, whether you want to learn to play guitar, whether you want to uh, completely change around some bad habits, whether you want to lose weight, whether you want to, you know, build mass or whatever, like you can, you can do, you can break a habit in three weeks and you can become somebody else in three months. Yeah, like 100%. Even if someone's listening to this a month from now, like it doesn't take that much time to, to learn something, especially, so I, I basically, in the course I said, I mean, sorry, in the blog post I said, I don't care if you've taken a course or if you learn it on your own, I just care that you you're proficient today, you know, and for e-commerce, it's very easy because I just want to know that you are making, you know, at least a couple sales. You don't have to be, a, you know, profitable. You could have a million problems. You know, that's kind of what I'm good at is scaling that up, optimizing it, making it profitable, you know, then selling it. But I don't want to teach someone how to resize an image. I don't want to teach someone how to, you know, do these super basic things that 
the information is out there, you know? So everyone listening to this, read that post, but basically get your act together, you know, either for yourself and you don't even have to partner with me. You can just do it on your own uh, or, you know, have the skills where if you decide that you do want to partner with me, then you have that option. And I think that life is just about those options. I mean, you definitely have to pave you have to pave your own road. You know what I mean? Like uh, th- there are people who expect the the road to be laid before them. Like there's some kind of special being, not that, I mean, we're all special beings, right? Um, but if you're not willing to, to, well, I heard, I heard a story and it, and it basically came down to this. Uh, there was a guy uh, who was very successful and the guy, uh, a person who wanted to be successful said, Hey, um, how can I be successful too? And the guy's like, you know, come follow me. And they went out into the ocean and the successful guy started drowning the the guy who wanted to to be successful. And the, the guy who wanted to be successful, who didn't drown, was like, hey, what the hell are you doing, man? He's like, you didn't want it bad enough. Like, you didn't want to, like, you had to fight for every breath of air. You know what I mean? You have to fight for everything. Um, and, and and that's true in a bunch of cases. But I think in 2016, the, the ability uh, to go digital and to replicate yourself and to, to bring thousands of people um, uh, at least thousands of hits maybe from all over the country or all over the world and convert one to five percent of those to sales um, it, it, it makes it to where people like instead of spending 300 grand on a law degree and and then becoming a partner and and working 90 hours a week you can you can sit around and 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 do nothing if you wanted to um, for a good portion of the day and, and work your ass off for a couple hours. And, it, it, you know, if you're doing like FBA or something like that or, or, or whatever. But for me, it's much better than the nine to five will ever be. So tell me about like your business. What, like why, why did you start this? What do you, why are you passionate about it? Like just, I'm, I'm, I'm just so curious why you chose this path. Um, you know, for me, I, there's two kinds of people. You 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 either embrace what your parents had, um, and and you try to duplicate it, or you rebel against it, and that can be positive or negative in either direction. Um, and and I actually, you know, I had a, I had a good I had a good uh, growing up, but my mom was uh, kind of the starving artist type. Uh, where she literally was an artist, a florist, a hairstylist, um, and she made good money. And then my dad had like the stable government job. So so that was cool. Um, but I just wanted to do something that was going to stir things up a bit, you know. And, and um, a couple of years ago, I got I was trying to make my dad into a I, I was trying to make my dad into a, a natural smoker. And so I introduced him to, to Hempwick because my buddy had become a general manager of, of a few head shops in her hometown. And so um, he thought it was a silly idea. And then I got, I got, I got this entrepreneurial bug. Um, and then with this factory, we started it because the patent that I was working on, it didn't work out at all. Um, I ended up fighting with the partner that I had. He screwed me over a bit. And now he's trying to to sell a, a cheap Chinese version of it. And it's not selling at all. What was the patent for? Um, it was it was basically uh, a lighter holder that held hemp wick um, and that so you could light it and use it with one hand. 
Um, and so the, the whole business plan behind it was to to get veterans to wrap the hemp wick and, and hire disabled veterans and to make it in America, make the molds in America and stuff. And, and he, he kind of, uh, he was a financial advisor. So every penny counted. And so he just wanted to do it on the cheap. And, and I didn't want to give up my principles. So I just wanted to start a company that had all of my principles in it. And so, so we we built machines to make these rolls and we spent a couple of years trying to make the best hemp wick ever. Um, Can you tell us about what is natural smoking and what is hemp wick? Uh, hemp wick is, uh, a lot of people in California will know, it, it's basically, uh, it's natural hemp fiber, which is from the industrial kind, so it doesn't get you high. And then you you dip it in beeswax um, and then you can, you can light it on fire and use that for smoking your bowl uh, or warming your vaporizer or in my case I, I take it to go camping because it's totally waterproof um, and it, it's a great kindling um, but how do you light this wick I mean you you for, for me I light a candle and then I use it if I'm smoking um, but but yeah man I mean people literally light it with a lighter first and then then they light their bowls with it Okay, so, so instead of using the lighter to your your bowl, yeah, which has like the like the the flint powder and butane byproducts, etc. Okay. So you bypass that by lighting this wick first, and then the wick becomes clean burning. Yeah, and then you light your yeah your, your joint with that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So so this is like twenty feet, which can burn for about two hours total. So it's like good for like a pass around sesh kind of thing with your buddies or whatever. Is it possible to use like um, what do you call those things? Like where you like strike some, something together and have a little spark? You know, I I want to I want to try it to like where if if I can take some some hemp wick and and put it into like a, a light ball and light it with the the flint. Um, I had heard from a buddy of mine that it that it works, but I haven't actually tried it myself. And I'm not exactly the the master outdoorsman fire builder myself, but for for me, it's great. In Poland, it's super humid and it rains a lot, so to to go camping and to have a waterproof fire starter for me, it's awesome. I just take a, a foot of it, roll it into a ball, and that that'll burn for like two minutes while I build a good fire around it. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so I don't have to burn my arm hair trying to hold a, a big lighter while I'm trying to get some grass to set on fire or something. I can just just light that on fire and it I like it. Thing. Okay. So in front of us we have not only this hemp wick, but we also have a hemp made belt. And it's a, a guitar strap. It's a guitar strap. Oh nice. And is this a cat like a dog collar or a cat collar? Yeah, a dog collar. It looks cool. I like it. So what you guys are expanding then into different products yeah we you know we uh we made some waves in the hemp world um and we actually had companies start to approach us um so like anybody who's familiar with fba um you know you're always looking for the factory right and so now we're the factory and people are coming up to us and they're they're asking hey can you make this um and so we had a customer of ours say hey our own, uh, the owner of our company is a vegan, uh, and he wants a hemp guitar strap that's vegan friendly. Can you do it? Um, and the answer was, you know, hell yeah, we can do it. Um, and then we figure out how to make it done. So, so that's my design. Um, and then I outsource a professional company to actually make and manufacture here, and, and that's made down the street. That's cool, man. Yeah. And so you have a. Where do you get the hemp, like the raw materials from? Uh, the all of the hemp webbing that we buy is from Romania. So it's all it's all grown in Romania. Um, hemp is actually grown in Poland, but for different uh, purposes. The like the. 
the more south you are, the younger you can harvest the hemp and it's better for fiber. Whereas up here, we're more north and it's better for like seed oil, um, hemp concrete and like insulation and stuff. So so they can, so you can legally grow hemp yeah. in Europe, yeah. but not in the US. No. It's so insane, right? Yeah. So I didn't know... Uh, 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 like why hemp was illegal until I listened to Joe Rogan kind of rant about it for a few hours. Yeah. Uh, do, do you know the story behind um, it? I know, I know various versions. Um, it basically comes down to bad propaganda and racism, you know? So it was something, okay. So it was something like everybody, a lot, lot of people smoked marijuana before, you know? And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but 50 years ago, you know, drugs were not this like stigmatized thing. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you want to do smoke some weed, you know, smoke joint, it's fine. You want to do some coke, it's fine. You know, you're not hurting anyone. It's it's not any worse than alcohol. But then uh, I think it, it was there was a there was one guy. I'm trying to remember his name. I was just trying to look it up. He was the owner of a um, pa- like a paper factory. Yeah, I forget his name off and the top of my head. He had decided he's like, you know what, this hemp material is going to take over my paper industry. Right. We have to do something to do something about it. So he, you know, had all this money cuz he was this this big um, you know, this big shot financially and they, you know, all the, you know, basically all these things happened where they just decided let's make marijuana illegal because only black people smoke it anyways. Um, and let's make them look like they're, you know, we're we're kind of like criminalizing this thing. And while we're doing it, let's also just um, you know, criminalize hemp even though you can't smoke hemp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I think people who are the big shots, like this guy who owned the the wood company. If I were that guy, I would have I would have kept doing my wood company, and then I would have used my capital to get into the next big thing, which was hemp. I wouldn't have tried. I wouldn't have spent money trying to destroy a new opportunity. I would have embraced the opportunity and still done both. You know. Okay, so I just looked it up. Uh, so it was during Hoover's presidency. Uh, this guy named. Andrew Mellon was the, the, the treasurer of DuPont's and DuPont's uh, primary investor. And his future nephew-in-law, Harry Aislinger, was the, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. So basically, they had these secret meetings with financial tycoons, and they're trying to figure out, okay, the, these guys are a threat to our billion-dollar enterprise. How, how can we take them down? So they knew they couldn't ban hemp because... Everybody used hemp at the time. It was kind of just like saying, like, we're gonna ban, you know, coconut fiber. We're gonna ban, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, cotton. <laughs> yeah. So instead, they renamed the, you know, um, I, th- I don't know what they used to call, it, but they didn't call it marijuana. Mar- uh, marijuana cannabis. was they probably, yeah, they probably called it cannabis. And everyone's like, yeah, we're not gonna ban that. It's fine, you know. So what they did was they used a obscure Mexican slang word called marijuana, which we all know now. But back then, nobody knew what it was. And they're like, let's, you know, they had all this um, journalism saying like, let's ban marijuana. You know, this, you know, makes makes black people crazy and they start mm-hmm. raping white women. And it it got passed, and all of a sudden, people realized, oh crap, we just we just banned hemp fibers and uh, cannabis. Yeah, I think it's 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 uh, weird. But I mean, let's let's break it down. Marijuana, Marie Juan. Yeah, that's oh, okay. that's about as Spanish as you get. So either way, here's here's my my question from the other side. Right? Is if hemp is as great as everybody's saying it is as materials because it's supposed to be what way stronger than cotton? Mm. Like, what, like what are some of the benefits of hemp? Uh, the the main benefits of hemp from an ecological standpoint is you basically you plant it and forget it. It, it grows so quickly that 
that weeds cannot proliferate in the field. Um, it has the ability to um, kind of refurbish soil because it has a tap root. So it goes straight down. So you can, when you harvest it in the fall, you can cut it and just leave it. Um, and the tap roots help to break up compacted soil, which is what happens when you run your tractor over the same field for years and years and years. Um, it doesn't take any water and it doesn't take any nutrients to grow. Um, but I mean, you can use nutrients to get it to grow better. Why does it take water to grow? Um, because because it has the tap root, um, it has the ability to reach down as far as it needs to, to get enough water essentially to survive. So, so last year we had a pretty bad drought um, and some of the hemp fields suffered, but I couldn't find any that died. So I was in Biawi stock on a harvest uh, last year and there were there were a few parts of the field that were higher so they would be drier um, that were you know about hip high um, but then in some of the deeper uh, portions that had better soil conditions they were you know way over my head as usual because they can get up to like you know 15 feet high or more so from everything I've heard uh, from you know, pro hemp supporters things I've read online it seems like hemp really is this amazing material that we're just not using because of these stupid laws that really have nothing to do with with anything else is are there some potential downsides of hemp that that, that people don't talk about because it's it almost sounds, seems like it's, if it's so good to be true like it, it really is such great material use has less of a you know ecological footprint uh requires less water you know is just just better in every way like why wouldn't laws change why wouldn't we use it you know or why wouldn't other countries just completely use it and just stop using paper you, you know i that's a that's a tough question um for any of like my hemp hemp entrepreneurs who hopefully are listening to this podcast um you know my thing is to to stop putting the cannabis leaf on everything you know what i mean like 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 a uh, fruit of the loom is not like putting a giant cotton ball uh you know ink print on the t-shirt and saying like you know, I mean, like they're not trying to be activists about it. Um, and, and, and people who are kind of over marketing the product, it's like what you said. If hemp was so damn good, I might accidentally own something that's hemp. You know, it's like it's like the first time you tried a wool sweater or the first time you bought, you know, nylon something or other. You put it on, you felt it and you looked at the wash tag to see what what the hell is this thing made out of? I've never felt this. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of what's going for hemp. You have people who are saying, you know, I mean, hemp is great. Hemp is sustainable. Hemp is strong. And it's all of these things. And it's it's always been a part of human culture somewhere in the world, especially in, in China. Um, but people are looking at it and they're like you want me to spend $60 on a t-shirt that's made out of a material that I've never even accidentally owned and you're just claiming that it's so great so it's my goal to try to help get cotton uh, and hemp more on the same playing field where right now because of subsidies and stuff cotton's super cheap hemp's pretty expensive and the biggest thing is the the processing of hemp that's the downfall is right now we don't have the best technologies in the world to make the best feeling fabrics. So like I have a t-shirt that's 45% uh, organic cotton and 55% hemp or vice versa. I forget. Um, and I don't really like it. It's, it's kind of itchy. It looks good. It feels good. It's stretchy. Uh, because there's cotton in it. If it was a 100% hemp shirt, it would be like wearing a, a, a linen dress shirt. There's no give to it. Whereas like, you know, my hat is a knitted uh, hemp hat. And for me, that feels good. 
I really I like it. It's breathable. It's warm. I can wear it on a hot day. I can wear it in the winter time. I like it. It's it's stretchy because it's you know it's knitted, but but if you were to make something like our t-shirts out of hemp, like it just doesn't work. Yeah, because I always imagine hemp being like a hemp shirt being this like oversized baggy. Um, poncho looking thing but you know what maybe it's just technology it just isn't there yet because I remember polyester being a terrible material growing up like oh like you would laugh like oh like it's itchy it's uncomfortable but now like the you know $40 North Face t-shirts that, that you know feel so good or like the Nike um, you know like active dry shirts these are all made from materials like polyester, and they're amazing now. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's just a lot of it is just scale, you know scalability, keeping the prices down, having better technology. But things like this, like this guitar strap, uh, the style color, like th- these, I think it looks great. It feels really strong. Um, it's and uses like this would, would be. I, I don't see why people would not use this material right now. I completely agree. Um... For for me, when it comes to applications like this, like the guitar strap, it's not itchy. Unlike the you know, because it's not you're wearing it over your shoulder and stuff like that. And I I just have it in the the natural color so that it doesn't like stain a sweaty guitarist you know who's playing for like an hour or something. Because I, I always worry about colors running, and so that's why everything that we have is just uh, natural material colors. But but for me, it gets softer over time, and I I built this thing to be able to hold a, a five thousand dollar guitar, you know, like some some super antique like Les Paul from the nineteen sixties or something. Because you know, I at one point was a musician, and so I'm just trying to to build stuff that I can actually be proud of, and then also paying people a living wage for doing it. I like that, and you know, the, the natural color of these, of, you know, this material is is awesome. Right? So I almost feel like you, you don't need to dye it. So I just looked up what are the uses of hemp. Uh, it said including rope, clothes, food, paper, textiles, plastics, insulation, and biofuel. H- how do you make plastic out of out of hemp? Um, I I actually I I know a guy uh, in Germany who's making some really uh, hemp plastics. Uh, that are pretty cool and is, is i'm not exactly sure how he does it but i know that that they they he says to me that in order to start a hemp plastic factory um they need to have 800 hectares of hemp uh near the factory and they they harvest all of it and then somehow they they pull out polymers from uh from the hemp um, and that's what makes the plastic portion. But then they're also embedding uh, like the natural fiber material into it and kind of making like a, a hemp plastic composite. So, so many crazy future uses. Uh, what are... So, so you, you kind of mentioned that if someone wants to come to you and build a custom product, you know, using hemp materials, like how, what is that process like? Um, pretty much, I just, I just get an email and, and they say... Uh, can you do this? And the answer is always a tentative yes, because I'm I don't believe in no. Um, and then we just we go through the feasibility. So so between um, the kind of materials that they'll want, um, it can or cannot be feasible. You know what I mean? Um, the the dog collars themselves were were actually a, a challenge. So I mean, we can talk about the dog collars, like. Uh, the, you know, making the dog collars easy. You know, you, you can go to to Amazon and buy a five star dog collar and duplicate it. And you know, that's essentially what this is. This is the hemp version of one of the top selling Amazon dog collars. Um, only we've used metal parts instead of plastic. Uh, this is actually used for horse 
courses so that we know that it's strong. Um, and then the the biggest challenge was actually finding good buckles uh, because buckles can be uh, either super cheap and you get what you pay for, or they can be pretty expensive. Um, and so that that was the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is is that. You know, a good dog owner, and I don't know if you've ever owned pets, you know, some people, they might tie their dog down to the front yard with just a collar instead of a choke chain. Um, and, And this is supposed to essentially protect the mailman from getting bit. You know what I mean? And so, uh, the idea is to, to build something with quality and to build something with strength. But also keeping the, the price is manageable. That's true. You know, some somebody just because it's made out of hemp and just because it's super strong doesn't mean that somebody is willing to pay thirty dollars for a dog collar when you can go buy a a Kong dog collar on Amazon for seven ninety nine and you know it's going to work because it's Kong. You know. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, what like is the minimum order quantity for something like this? Uh, for the dog collars and stuff, um, you know, we can do uh, embroidering or we can do the plain versions and stuff. And so, for me, MOQ is depending on if you want them embroidered or not. Like as little as a hundred units. If you want them embroidered, five hundred to a thousand. You know, depending. But I mean, we do three different sizes for the dog collars. We got a three quarter inch uh, wide, one inch wide, and one and a quarter. So, like. You know, all the way down to the little purse dogs, all the way up to like the the mastiff, just huge hundred kilo dogs. You know. And, okay, that makes sense. So let, let's say somebody ordered uh, like a hundred, right? And would you be able to ship it? Like, what what is the process like if you wanted to ship it to the U.S. Uh, to, to like Amazon headquarters? It, are there customs from Poland? How, how does that work? Yeah, um, I mean, the cool part about Poland is it's within the European Union. So once we so we get the order, so we'll take fifty percent up front, um, and then that way you know we can hold the order. Um, we get all the materials, we get it made, uh, we get it embroidered or whatever in a couple of weeks, and then upon shipment, we give them. Usually, we air ship with with ups because um ups's custom service is just phenomenal you know so it can be from here to to ohio um in less than you know 48 hours through Fast. through customs and everything well, well, so. so what's the what's the cost of shipping um like let's say like 100 of these dog collars to, to amazon in the u.s you know i'm not I'm not 100% sure. Um, usually we can, it depends, it mostly depends on how many kilos the boxes yeah. is, but but uh, usually to do an air shipment and stuff, um, or like a couple, it depends if it's a couple boxes on a pallet, or if it depends if it's a couple of just individual boxes. Usually it's a couple hundred bucks. So I guess, like financially, to make sense, somebody can, you know, I guess they can test it to see if someone wants to buy it with this kind of a small order, and then they see it selling, they can they can say to you like, okay, this is selling, and I need some more. What what would like the turnaround time be to make like, let's say I ordered hundred of these, some on Amazon, they started selling, and I say to you like, Michael, I need some more. Uh, how fast can you get me a thousand pieces? Um, if we wanted to make a thousand straps. Usually, the the biggest part is actually getting the materials from Romania. So we have a pretty good relationship with them now. Um, so so by the time somebody, if we don't have the material on hand, so let's just say we're completely out of stock, it might take up to two to three weeks just to get the materials for making um, for making the strap itself um the buckles depending on the application could if they wanted like a custom colored buckle or something it could take up to five weeks even to get the the and this is just this is real manufacturing right um so this is what you'll this what you won't hear manufacturers say normally the truth right 
So it could take up to five weeks just to get the buckles from like YKK or whatever factory. Um, but then actually assembling a thousand of them, less than a week. That's really cool. So I'm gonna give everyone a six-figure business tip right now. If you guys want, if you guys are doing FBA, if you're looking to it, looking for products, go on Amazon right now and look for things that are selling super well in you know pretty much any category, and then ask yourself, can this be made out of hemp? And if it can, contact Michael and 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 you know put down the 50% deposit, test it with a couple hundred units, and then if it works out, then start worrying about you know scalability, uh, profit. Because I'm, I'm I'm assuming that if someone orders a thousand units the price per units can be a lot less than 100 units right yeah 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 it's 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 uh, that good old economy of scale you know the the more you order the more material i'm able to order you know what i mean so um like like on these colored buckles if if you were just a regular person and you decided hey i want to start a dog collar company and you got a hold of ykk but you wanted red buckles um you have to order like four thousand buckles minimum you know before you can even start up so so as a as a factory you know a lot of our uh, money is is held up in stuff sitting on the shelf so we have buckles laying around we have giant rolls of of fabric and materials and and i can show you a, a nice you know picture of of hemp we have literally a, a one ton of hemp sitting in the corner of our of our factory where where we make the hemp wick you know that's crazy and and what's actually really cool is this gives people an excuse to expense a trip to poland so if you guys you know are serious about manufacturing instead of going to china which nobody wants to go to it's pain in the ass it sucks it's language problems uh, it just sucks (laughs) i haven't had the pleasure yeah uh i i one of the reasons why I never got into FBA or manufacturing is because I just don't want to go to China. I just, I like, I don't like the food. I don't like the culture. I don't like the business. I don't like the rudeness. I don't like the, you know, slave labor of people working for, you know, 15 hours a day for peanuts. Right. So the fact that you are t- really taking care of your employees, you had mentioned that you pay them way more than standard minimum wage, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The 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 guys who make the hemp wick, for example, like, so, so let's just say somebody working at McDonald's in the city center um and you know how expensive it can be here so like you need you need like two thousand zloty a month just to have an apartment and then a couple hundred zloty for food etc um people who are working at zara or or uh, american eagle at the mall here they're making like eight to ten zloty an hour so they'll they'll work eight hours a day or less and And this isn't eight to ten dollars an hour this is zloty which is four to one so they're making two two dollars an hour yeah essentially two bucks an hour um and with with our guys so so you so that's like 16 hours a day or 16 dollars a day if you were to convert it to dollars whereas our guys working in the factory and i'm not talking about like they're not sweating like they're sitting on their headphones listening to to music like we have one guy he was uh he was a blogger for metal bands right and so he would review music while he was working and then go home and and write blog posts about the the music that he would just listen to that day and he was making like 45 dollars a day so he's making you know two to three times as much as somebody working in retail yeah uh, and he's able to you know work for this this company that that takes care of him and yeah. this kind of transfers back to like the craftsmanship, the quality of work, uh, you know, being able to say like our materials are ethnically sourced, but also made, um, which is very different than China. I mean, I, w- I would definitely say that these these have to be higher end products. You can't just, if you want to sell the cheapest stuff on Amazon and just price compete, don't go this, this route. 
only go this route if you are going to have a premium product. So whatever product you find on Amazon, if it's selling for you know $29, expect your hemp version to be $39 or whatever it is. It has to be a premium product. So what I would recommend to people is when you're looking at things on Amazon to, to potentially sell, ask yourself, is somebody who is like very environmentally conscious or is um, you know kind of like a new age, you know, someone who smokes weed would would they would they pay a premium for this for this product or is it something that they even use or they even want and i think you know if you are a environment conscious burning man pot smoker you would love for your dog or cat to have a hemp collar or you know your guitarist and so these things really do make sense while you know another you know product might not make sense right yeah you know i think there's there's a niche for everybody you know what i mean um there there are people who who really love their dog and they really love their cat or whatever and they're they're not willing like they never take their dog for a walk so they're not willing to to throw down on a very expensive leash and a very expensive uh collar and stuff like that and i'm not saying that that these products are expensive um but you're right you know we we pay people we get the highest quality hemp materials that we can find in romania that's not cheap i mean if you if you knew how much i was spending on materials like it's a lot of, it's a lot of dough uh versus you know, I can get the same thing in China. Like I can get this from China, but our business model is European quality, European people, like local products. You know what I mean? And so everything is sourced from Europe only. I like it. it. So if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how, what's the, what's your website or what's the kind of the best way? Uh, the website is actually natural materials, dot pl um the website is totally not even done i'm not gonna lie people if you go to this website you're gonna be like oh this is a scam website it's not even real like it, it it's barely even there it's pretty much just there so i can own the email because uh people within the industry who know us know us and they know how to get a hold of us and we basically just have the website as a parking spot so if you want to contact me directly uh you can just email sales at naturalmaterials.pl um, and if you really have a problem with it you can make me a new website man this is the worst website I've ever seen it's super bad it's just a, it's a wordpress <laughs> template with like a hemp field on top yeah. and like it literally basically says I'm sorry we're under construction get over it so not that it really matters, but I would spend an hour and just throw a couple photos up. I know. You know, maybe have a, a proper contact us page or something. It's true. But, I'm not going to lie. But I've, I've slacked on that. What's more important is I know you're real. I can see these products in front of me. and These are real. I'll, I'll take a photo of these and I'll put it on the show notes of this episode so you guys can see it for yourself that no, he's actually making real material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. And for everyone who has been leaving new reviews on iTunes, thank you guys so much. This podcast has been growing insanely fast because of your support. So please tell your friends about this podcast. Please share it. Please go to iTunes and leave a review and I'll see you, all of you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.